With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to... Hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. There is no denying. It has been a chaotic 2021 Indian Wells. So many unexpected results over the course of the event, so much so that we felt the need to break down the men's and women's singles competitions in separate podcasts here on Saturday to help provide a complete picture for all of you tennis fans. If you hop on over to our mini break podcast feed, you'll hear Chris Otto and I discuss the chaos that has unfolded on the men's side. We discuss what continues to be a breakthrough season for Cam Norrie here in 2021. We discuss a breakthrough result for Taylor Fritz here at Indian Wells, the excellence of Dimitrov, Basilashvili, and so much more. All of that available on the Mini Break podcast feed, which you can find wherever you listen to your podcasts or on our website, crackrackets.com. Here on this show, we had to discuss the familiar chaos that we see unfolding in the women's singles competition. Paula Bedosa continuing her breakout 2021 season, maybe the feather in the cap here by reaching the final of the event. She's put herself in a pole position to qualify for the year-end finals in Guadalajara. Of course, we have a resurgent Victoria Azarenka, two-time Indian Wells champion, back into another final with her three-set win over Yelena Ostapenko. It's been a brilliant run for Ostapenko, and of course, it's worth pondering, is she back heading into that 2022 season? And of course, to help me discuss all of that, I could think of no one better to join me than returning champion here on our Cracked Racket Shows Tennis Channel and Tennis.com editorial producer David Kane joins me to break down all of the women's action. We also discuss where things stand in the race to Guadalajara chaos unfolding on the women's side. That's exactly how we like it right down the season's home stretch. It is a fantastic conversation that I know all of you listeners are going to enjoy. So without further ado, let's get to it. Here is my conversation talking all things women's singles at Indian Wells with the one and only David Kane. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Joining us on the podcast once again today is a man ascending quickly up the ranks for the most Crack Rackets podcast appearances all time. You know him as an editorial producer for all things Tennis Channel, Tennis.com, a man forever ensconced on the Elena Vesnina week, a man who has also been looking for an excuse to pitch a best of Bedosa week. He has that opportunity now at Indian Wells and to help us make sense of all of the madness of the past week, joining us once again on the show, a man I know as David Kanyev, a man you know as David Kane. David? Welcome back. How are you doing today, my friend? Hola, Alejandro. Muchas gracias. I feel like I got to do some Spanish this week because we've got a, we got a theme going on. Yeah. The problem is David Kane translates way better to Russian than it does to Spanish. So I don't know if I – like I, Davi, I David – Davide for your pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, but oh, all is well with you. It's obviously a busy week, Indian Wells, a little late October or early October action, I suppose. Usually post-US Open things somewhat cool off. They have not the past 10 days. It has been chaos at Indian Wells. Have you been enjoying it? 
It's been a bit of a tease of what we're hoping to get back next fall with the Asian swing with the time difference. We've had some pretty late nights. I think um, the second semifinal between Palabadosa and Onjibor went until about 1, 12.45, 1 a.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. So haven't loved that time shift, but it's been great to see tennis back in the California desert, as I'm sure the fans have been really happy to see that as well. And looking forward to a really exciting finals weekend. Listeners don't know this, but there's a WhatsApp group. I won't say who else the members are, but David is one of the members. I am also a member. I happen to have founded the group, and it's called I Was Right, You Were Wrong. Um, This is one of those instances where I'm right, you're wrong. The shift to Indian Wells, and I will say this, since I've gone to college, and other than my first semester and my final semester of college, I did not have a class before 10 a.m. Shout out to the scheduling gods. I love the late night shift. I'm an 11 a.m. to 3 uh, to 3 a.m. sort of guy, so it's been right in my wheelhouse, and we have had fantastic matches seemingly each and every night. And I do want to pick your brain about a quick tangent before we dive into Paul Bedosa, dive into the year end race, all that fun stuff. The conditions at Indian Wells, because this might be something I might not be right, and I might be wrong. I want to hear other opinions. I love it. I it To me, Indian Wells is the closest we get to seeing what tennis would look like if it was played with ground stroke games. And of course, the outliers on serve may be the exceptions. If you are a John Isner, or well, maybe not the exceptions, but I guess, you know, the Taylor Fritzes of the world who can hit just these bombs because the ball is bouncing so high, your serve is that much more pronounced. But unless you're that, the serve has been neutralized. And we have just seen slog after slog, match after match. And at times it's been ugly, but you know I find beauty in the ugliness. You see how unshaven I am right now. I think it's been – I really enjoy this Indian Wells. And October makes it that much more difficult, I suppose, to hit through any court. But I enjoy this surface. Am I alone in that enjoyment? You know, I think when you ask players how to describe conditions, you get an array of responses ranging from a detailed description of each ball bouncing to a complete confusion from each court that they step onto all feels the same or a little bit different. I think the conventional wisdom with Indian Wells is the idea that there it's a slow bouncing court, but the balls that they use are quite fast. I don't know if that's if that's changed of late, but that's certainly what I grow up, I grew up remembering. And obviously Indian Wells has a special place in my heart as we approach the five year anniversary of the twenty seventeen tournament for <laughs> obvious reasons. But I've always, you know, it's it's one of those place it's one of those tournaments in the calendar particularly you know growing up as a tennis fan you know you've gotten through the Australian Open Middle East swing you get that you know taste of American tennis that you haven't gotten since the U.S. Open a little bit of a closer uh touch from the U.S. Open this year because it happens only a month after the final Grand Slam of the season but I you know I think it all depends on your taste if you love big serves and maybe you're not really going to enjoy this this brand of tennis but I mean if you're watching Elena Ostapenko go for what 90 odd winners and getting them right two out of three times you know I think then uh, then maybe it doesn't really matter the surface or the conditions but I think yeah I think Previewing the tournament, I gave big ups to uh, my boy Casper Ruud and Paula Badosa because I felt that that sort of slow, hard court would reward um, their heavy topspin off the forehand side, and it worked out pretty well for Paula so far. Not as not as much for Casper, but I think if we give him another crack at it, <laughs> crack at it in March over the next couple of years, we might see some more um, some more dividends from the yeah. uh, Norwegian. And I also don't think Casper played poorly in losing to Diego Schwartzman in the round of sixteen. I thought it was a pretty good tournament, and it's been a very good hard court summer for Casper. A couple of things. I'm glad you brought up Ostapenko. I forgot to put it in my outline. I will be asking you later if Yelena Ostapenko is back. So hold that thought for a little bit. But I'm also curious that my head went here. It shows you where I'm at. We're recording on Saturday when you said everyone knows what happens 2017 Indian Wells final. I wish I could search the Google metrics throughout the day. Like when people are listening to this, how many people are like, okay, what did happen at the 2017 Indian Wells? Because I don't really What remember. didn't happen? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. But um, all that is to say, so I asked Chris Otto this. We were talking about the men's side on a mini break podcast. You're our great shot podcast today, which for the record was the OG podcast. That's how, I don't know if you think, I think more highly of you because of that, but take with that what you will. Um, All of that said, I asked him because it has been a funky week, obviously. And on the men's side, no top 25, uh, top 20 seeds, excuse me, first time that's ever happened. On the women's side, you know, Onjabur, I think was the 12th seed, was the highest remaining seed starting at the quarterfinal round, I want to say. And just, again, there's been some funkiness all week long. And There's been some funkiness all year long. That's been the story of professional tennis in 2021. 
the results we see here at Indian Wells this week, are they a byproduct? You know, I associate that funkiness with the generational shift we see occurring. Has the funkiness we've seen here at Indian Wells been a byproduct of that generational shift and this is just another manifestation of that? Or is it because it's October and it's post-U.S. Open and things always get weird post-U.S. Open or is it somewhere in between? I mean, when it comes to answering that question, I think it's two different answers for the WTA and the ATP. I think the WTA, this is your sort of standard brand of reasonable funk, where yeah. you're looking at the draw and you're looking at these th- seeds and saying, oh, they're not the top seeds. But when you look at Annette Kontavite and Anshabor and Palabadosa, these are players that have all come into this tournament with a good amount of match wins and confidence under their back. They're, they're taking momentum from the smaller stages and bringing it onto the bigger stages, which for those who only pay attention to the big stages, it kind of can be a bit surprising but then if you talk to your WTA insiders you say well no you know Annette Konsevich just ran the table in Ostrava with all three putting all three exclamation points into that week with with her tennis and obviously what we've seen from Paola what we've seen from even Angelique Kerber from earlier in the season at Wimbledon I mean these are all reasonable players I think with the men's side I really we're seeing the result of what happens when there's a tournament without the big three at the end of the season when maybe a Daniel Medvedev isn't feeling as fresh as he might have been, but we're really seeing the bottom kind of falling out on the ATP and, and, and sort of a perhaps a harbinger of what's to come. I, I think we're just seeing proof of the fact that this second line or this next generation is not quite at the level where they can handle that sort of week in and week out high-level consistency that we've become so spoiled by when it comes to the big three. But we've also seen some really great stories when you think of a Grigor Dimitrov taking on Cam Nori. Um, you know, I think these are these are great names. And again, that's sort of a representative sample of that WTA funk where you've seen Cam Nori come up the ranks and now he's finally putting it together on a big stage. So there's some surprises, maybe some earlier exits from certain players. But when we've gotten down to the semis, the finals, it's not entirely a shock. I mean, the women's final, for example, features a former two-time champion. So mm-hmm. take that from what you will. A couple of things there. You listeners won't hear it, but here's how I know you're a returning champion. You just did something there, David. Pro's pro move. And listeners won't hear it, but you know what you did. So bravo to you. You are a returning champion here on <laughs> uh, the show as he sends me a winky face you all don't get to see. Um, the other thing, and to your point, I mean, you thought you weren't going to get some ATP analysis in on this podcast you're wrong. See, I knew I was going to get it out of you. Um, yeah, I, I think you laid it out perfectly. I do think this is your typical brand of WTA chaos. And of course, one of these storylines, maybe the storyline heading into the final, has been the ascension of Paula Bedosa. And let's be clear, this is perhaps the feather in the cap of what has been a breakthrough campaign for Paula Bedosa here in 2021. And poor you know, there have been so many great cases this year for most improved player on the women's side. It's such a shame that Krejcikova is going to win the award so clearly because, like, she is the winner of that award. But, like, under normal circumstances, Paula Bedosa has a rock-solid case to be your most improved player here this season. And just to lay out the stats before we talk about what she's done so well here at Indian Wells particularly, she's now 40-15 and 15 here on the year. Those 40 wins, that's a, you know, top seven number amongst WTA players here this season. You look for her beyond that. She's tied for sixth in terms of most quarterfinals reached on the year. She's reached eight in terms of semifinals now. She's tied for fourth most semifinals reached on the year uh, with five in total and again you look for her in terms of the advanced metrics she's one of four uh one of 14 players on the wta tour to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage now she's a top 25 clubber not a top 20 not 15 top 10 and you look for it's i think 19th in hold per, excuse me 19th in break percentage 23rd in hold percentage you wouldn't say either of those is particularly elite but they're both very very good And that speaks to Paula Bedosa. She's been excellent all year long across surfaces. Round of 16 at Wimbledon quarterfinals at uh at the french open the only two puzzling losses for her on the season were probably the losses to gracheva you know two uh straight sets for her four and four in the second round of the u.s open the marina loss seven six in the third in canada any seven six in the third loss you can kind of write off uh but of course for her that also came after a quarterfinals run at the Olympics, after round of 16 at Wimbledon, after quarterfinals at the French Open. That's a lot of high-stress tennis in a short period of time. That's it. Like, those are the only losses you might even question 
on her resume. You want to say the loss to Zidancic, 8-6 in a third set? Come on. That's not a bad loss. I There's not a single other one. Samsonova, first-round Australian Open, 7-5 in the third. But we know what Samsonova's gone on to do here this season. She's been excellent. Like, Paula Bedosa has established age 23. It makes sense from a development curve. Hey, I'm here to stay. Top 30. You know, again, that is, I think, the floor for her moving forward. I mean, even those two losses, the loss to Gracheva and to Marina, I mean, the first the one at the U.S. Open coming on the heels of sort of this nascent shoulder injury that she's been nursing and still doesn't feel 100 percent on the loss to Marino, an emotional win for Marino in Canada coming on the heels of uh, Bedosa's coaching switch from uh, coach Javier Marti, who she hired right before Roland Garros last fall and sort of precipitated and catalyzed uh, this march up the rankings for her big question when she split how she was going to respond and the fact that she's been able to respond this well um, is just a testament to, first of all, how happy she is both on and off the court. We've seen um, some of those videos of her dancing uh, in the pre-match with uh, with her coach and with a boyfriend slash model, Juan Betancourt. I mean, wouldn't, want, wouldn't envy her right now or wouldn't, um, or not, wouldn't, I would, I do envy her right now, I guess. I, guess I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't not want to be her for a double negative for your pleasure. But I mean, I, I mean, when I look back, I do look back at the French Open quarterfinal just based on the way that draw shook out the chances that Bedosa had once she had sort of figured Zidanechik out in the second set, had was up a break in the third, had a lot of break points late in that match, um, did not convert that. And then, as, as I said, you know, with Pavly Chankov in the semis and good friend Krejcikova potentially in the final we could be have a very different conversation about Paula Pedosa right now. But I think the good thing about her, about Paula this year, is that for all of her highs, she has had some exorbitant lows. I mean, starting in January, at, before that match against Samsonova, being in hard quarantine in Melbourne, ha- having COVID for pretty much two and a half weeks was stuck in her hotel before she even had a chance to go out and hit. In spite of that, still almost won that match against Samsonova, served for it in the third set. Um, you know, she's handled adversity tremendously tremendously well and i think it speaks that speaks more to to me than even any of the the stats and the individual results just the fact that she has taken a lot of lumps through this 2021 season and come back swinging each and every time and has played really phenomenal dominant just business like tennis through this tournament has not dropped a set since the opening match against diana yastremska every time i think she's got a tricky opponent whether it's coco golf barbara krachkova angelique kerber a former finalist and former number one and on jabor the trickiest of the tricky gets all of them done in straight sets in, in varying conditions. The match against Coco was in breezing wind. So I, I'm really quite impressed. And, and having said all that, I'm sure now I've doomed her and she will take a 6-4, 6-2 loss to Azarenka. But all, all of which to say, very impressed by her and even more excited to see what she could put together in 2022. And it's where the results have come. Again, eight quarterfinals, uh, five semifinals. She's made quarterfinals. Roland Garros, <clears throat> excuse me, Roland Garros, she did it in Tokyo, you know, for her semifinals in Madrid, semifinals, uh, quarterfinals in Cincinnati as well, semifinals for her in Madrid. She obviously ran a 16 Wimbledon final here at Indian Wells. She won her first title earlier the year in Belgrade. Uh, you know, one. What is it there? I think nine matches in a row at one point during the season from Belgrade through Roland Garros. That's a difficult number to hit. That means you're having an extended period of success, and you break it down you know, by the rankings. Against players outside the top 50, she's 21-6 on the year. Against players inside the top 50, 19-9, perhaps most impressively, 10-3 and three against top 20 opponents this season. Now, four of those wins have come here at Indian Wells, but 6-3 and three before that as well. It's legitimate, you know— Again, wins over Jabour, Krechikova, Sabalenka, Sviantek, Barty, all this season. That's a who's who list. She has beaten all of the best players by any metric you want to rate uh, throughout the course of the year. And, you know, with that sort of result, David, she's going to get into Guadalajara. You know, she is technically in 10th right now, but we're all pretty sure Barty's not going to play. So that puts her up to 9th. She trails Naomi Osaka by nine points, although I doubt we see Osaka play again this season. I could see Bedosa sneaking into a 250, would need one first-round victory to surpass Osaka, seal that eighth place. She now has a 261-point lead on Svitolina, 262-point lead on Jess Pagula. I mean, again, she's had success at the big results. She's beaten the best player It seems a bit surprising since she's only 17th right now in the live rankings, 
but by again, one of fourteen to be top twenty-five club. You name it. By all of these metrics, she's earned this final spot in Guadalajara. I mean, and it's a testament to seemingly how out of nowhere it was. I don't, I don't think she came up in, in our yeah. top in our race to Guadalajara. Well, discussion. I think she was twentieth coming into this event, and she's now yeah. in the pole position. With the shoulder injury, the fact that she only played Osterva after the U.S. Open, and she mentioned that she really wasn't thinking about Guadalajara at all. Whether or not she wins this final against Azarenka would make a tremendous difference to her chances of, of qualifying outright. If she wins, I believe, don't quote me on this, but based on the math of the live tennis rankings, if she wins the title on Sunday, she will surpass Jabor for number eight. And that would give her a lot of extra wiggle room because unlike her, a lot of these players, whether you're Svitolina's, all of the ones that are kind of right behind Jabor and Osaka right now are all clamoring to enter as many tournaments as possible and get those extra points. You could see a potential for a Tamea Baczynski situation back in 2015, where she had that great result, I believe making the finals in Wuhan in 2015 and getting up to number eight, but just didn't enter enough tournaments after that to um, get herself to the WTA finals. And she was really in pole position to do it. So I think if she can get herself into Cluj, Nepal, uh, uh, Cluj um, in a couple of weeks, that would be an interesting twist for her. But then also you have to deal with the physical health. Is it worth it for her to break down her body further to qualify for something that she may be able to just qualify for outright next year if she continues this consistency and continues this, this, um, this string of good results? It goes back to that sort of Radha question. How much do you push for the short term when there are long-term goals up in front of you? But yeah, it's, it really has been, you know, you talk about Bedos and we talk about that WhatsApp group that we're in. I think she's an interesting foil to Annette Kontavide who came into this tournament with a lot of fire, with a lot of, you know, potential to do a, a really big result here. She doesn't figure out on Shabor, but Paula is able to do it. And I think that's just a testament again to this confidence, the comfort on the surface, and just the, the string of results this year just been really astronomical mm-hmm. and could not have predicted it at the start of the year. No, and in terms of the year-end race, and let's talk about that a little bit now, just the various scenarios coming into the semifinals, Bedosa had, I believe it was, I want to say, 2,502 points. Svitolina had 2,501. Pegula had 2,500. There was a world where if Jabour would have knocked off Bedosa, not only would she have given herself a pretty commanding lead to clinch that seventh spot, uh, but also if Vika or Ostapenko would have won the final, they would have moved up to the eighth spot. That speaks to how thin the margins are right now. And you look at the WTA calendar, there's the 500 in Moscow happening this week. As of now, Jabour is scheduled to play that event. We'll see if that happens. But you've got Sakari, you've got uh, Muguruza, you've got uh, Pavlichenkova, Kontave, Kerber all competing there. Kasakina, I suppose, outside shot as well. You want to throw Ostapenko in the mix. I'll listen to it after what we've seen this week, although the gap's just a little bit bigger for her. Um, you know, for Bedosa, if she loses here in this final, Svitolina, who's playing a 250 this week, if she wins it, she would take an 18-point lead. If any of Pavlichenkova, Kontave, or Kerber win in Moscow, they would also surpass Bedosa. After that, there are a couple of 250s left on the board. I mean, if she wins, though... Now we're talking, as you mentioned, she's sitting comfortable, and so is Jabour as well. And we kind of know our eight at that point because even if any of those players I mentioned win Moscow, they're still trailing. What was so impressive for Paula Bedosa, and I kind of want to get into the tennis now, and let's focus on the Bedosa tennis first, then get back to the year-end finals. But it was a pressure match. She knew that. I mean, she may not have known those exact stakes coming in, but certainly she was well aware of the fact that this is, you know, she's competing for not only an Indian Wells final, but for a spot in the year-end finals. And you just look what she was able to do with her first serve. She won 76% of her first serve points yesterday against Own Shabur. And you sort of brought it up. The way she was going after her forehand, I did not expect Paula Bedosa to have that sort of plus-one power to be able to just so easily disrupt the rhythm of Own Shabur, prevent her from getting into her plays, playing the slices, the short angles, the drop shots. Not saying Shabur didn't have chances to do that throughout the match. Certainly she did. But the most powerful shot and the most effective play on the court was the plus-one from Bedosa. And that's been the theme all week for her. I just—I didn't see that coming. I mean, I think— 
for me, having watched a lot of Bella over the last two years, I think it was the forehand was really quite a revelation in that match against Anna Bogdan at the French sure. Open, and particularly up against, juxtaposed against the Anna Bogdan backhand, which we haven't seen a ton of since. But I mean, the forehand from Bedosa really, it's just such a clean, effective stroke. I'm a, I'm a tactic, I'm a technical snob. I mean, like if you have clean, precise technique, it really does catch my eye. And in a world where you deal with a lot of wacky, funky technique that's very clean, very consistent, can deal with a lot of different ball heights and ball um, spins based on the way that she's been able to perform on clay, grass, outdoors and indoors, making a semifinals in Lyon earlier this season. So really, the sky is the limit for that. It's just it's a pretty it's a consistent game. She's been able to unlock um, an aggressive game, which can also be tricky. I think one of the things that have really haunted Garbina Muguruza over the years is the fact that she was she grew up as a defensive player and then grew into this really athletic body that gave her the opportunities to be aggressive. And I think we've always seen it's a lot easier for naturally aggressive players to rein that in versus mm-hmm. more defensive players learning when to be aggressive. There's always that push and pull, and then you end up getting errors, and you don't have that same confidence in a match if you're not a naturally aggressive player and, and not knowing when to rein that in. But yeah, just just really, you know, again, looking at those opponents in Indian Wells, each one, I think I've tricked her to lose because I just, you know, playing Coco Golf and American and Indian Wells, as much as Coco hasn't been as amazing as she, as she was earlier in the season, I still thought, you know, playing a night match in front of an American crowd, it rained. She was off the court at five two. You're thinking, okay, she's just going to get nervous. She's going to come back. And I just think what's been so impressive about Paula is just how mentally tough she's been. It's been a little tricky the end of the matches against Kerber and, and Jabor, but the way that she was able to close out both of them and just sort of rely on her legs, the fact that she just felt like the superior player out there really helped her get off the get over the finish line both times and didn't didn't shirk. And you really you look for that in a in a, in a top consistent player yeah there's a, there's just a smoothness to everything Paula Bedosa does around the court the fluidity out of the corners her ability to absorb that down the line ball from Jabour and get it back with enough pace and depth that Jabour didn't just have the easy drop shot the easy put away available because if you give that to own Jabour it's you know game set match good night uh yeah what was also so impressive and what was a seesaw match right Bedosa races out to a two love lead Jabour takes the next two games Bedosa was better at the net than I anticipated. She was good yesterday, taking the ball out of the air, playing the short angles, hitting the overhead confidently, which is half the battle. Just again, hitting that hitting that ball decisively without doubt. Um, I I was, and just the you know again the power on the serve, and again the dynamic of the forehand versus you know the, the consistency of the backhand. There was no wavering on that side. She also very clearly identified look I and she knows Jabour's games well but it was like I have to pick on the backhand corner I'm not going to play around with the forehand it's depth to that backhand corner whenever I'm in trouble that's the bailout move she had the speed to track down the drop shots as well and at least force a second play out of Jabour if not put that ball away outright there's just a lot to like about Bedosa it may not be the glaring weapons of a Sabalenka the glaring serve of an Osaka but it's just a real. It, again, it's it's a very high floor, with a higher ceiling than you'd expect sort of player. With the athleticism I mean, to compete with the high ceiling players. Yeah, I mean everything just feels just right. You know, yeah. nothing is too extreme. Nothing is held back from the first point. She ra- she ran down and committed committed to tracking those drop shots. I mean, Paula's been talking about how close of friends she is with Krenchkova and Jabor, and it was really on display. In both of those matches, she knew both of those players so well. When you think about it, all three of them were sort of in the same ranking group before this pandemic, and they've all shot up the rankings together. So they have a lot of familiarity experience, probably watched a lot of each other's matches over the years. So that that really, that sort of tennis brain is what was impressive. And then, yeah, after losing that first break in the the first set, there were a lot of close games up until 4-3 when when Bedosa got the break. You feel like, you know— Ons is weaving her web, <laughs> you know, like she gets these players, she gets them flustered, and then she's able to just sort of work the crowd. And she was trying to get the crowd involved at, even at the end of the match, and she was trying to make that last stand. And, and, and Paola really just shut it down pretty much each and every time, had a really strong serving day, as you said, clean at the ends. Even after that wacky double fault on the fifth match point, you're thinking, oh, no, but just didn't came down and put in a big first over, I believe, the very next point, and then converted on the sixth. There was just no, there's no doubt. And you just, there have been so many reasons for her to doubt herself in 2021, whether it was COVID fatigue or switching your coach after the um, 
after Wimbledon or having to switch from clay to grass. I mean, I tell you, I, I white knuckle that what, that Wimbledon result has proved that she is good on all surfaces. But I mean, even recovering from the, the match against Sedanchik, she said she took her quite a few days to recover. And I can only imagine, given the circumstances, the momentum, just sort of the the um, the narrative and sort of the destiny of it, you know, being this former junior champion coming in and, you know, having all these parallels over the years to Sharapova, to Muguruza. I mean, watching her her game, it doesn't really remind me a ton of Sharapova other than the just sort of the, the raw aggression. I mean, the, the, the ground strokes actually remind me a bit of Nadia Petrova, like a mix of a Petrova, a mix of a, um, a little bit of a Muguruza, just sort of like a little bit more technical in that sense. I mean, the Petrova really worked to to flatten out that forehand over the years. Yeah. It was a much more clay courty swing when she first um, came on the tour, but it's it's just really phenomenal the way she's been able to turn this round and also had a lot of struggles, you know, emotionally over the years, had you know issues with depression, anxiety, had to figure those out, seems to have kind of gotten that under control, which is just the, the amount of adversity she's had to overcome that have things that have t has overcome more that has felled a lot of her rivals who have had to deal with less, I guess is the best way to say it. So just really all around, just so impressed with the way she's been able to do it. And yeah, I, I would I would like to see her in Guadalajara in a way that doesn't completely physically destroy her. But then you think back at the WTA finals, the, some of the best players in these tournaments are the ones that it took down to the very last second for them to qualify. If it's a Sabolkova or a Kuznetsova, these players who just kind of ride that wave right into the finals and end up making the semis and winning it. So I think Either way, you know, we, we got to really see where this this final is going to tell us a lot about where where she's going to stand. Yeah, no, she's winning over 70% of her first serve points this week. And again, wins over Goff, Krejcikova, Kerber, Jabour. I'd point out the only person to get a set off her thus far, Diana Yastremska. Is that worth noting heading into 2022? <laughs> maybe, maybe. But no, of course, Bedosa has been exceptional. And again, she's currently in 10th, technically 8th in the points race for the year-end finals. Let's go there next. Moscow's on the board. Again, there's some 250s as well. If Bedosa loses this match, she'll be at 27-62. Uh, Svitolina, Pavlochenkova, Mertens, uh, excuse me, Pavlochenkova, Kontave, and Kerber, all capable of passing her with victories in either Moscow or wherever Svitolina's competing this week. I'm not exactly sure. Where are you at? year-end race i know we talked about this before the tournament we're nine days later have obviously bedosa was not the name we expected has she clinched it i mean could when one say... of could one of those four players win a title this week absolutely like they absolutely could so it's where are you at well that's the question does it would it take a win like they have to win titles to add, they have to win the title to add points or do they I have to just make so. the quarters the semis so for kerber She's got to win it because how many? I don't know how many points are in the three fifty or in the five hundred final, but I don't think it's enough to get through. Conteve is the interesting one. She might have to make final. Svitolina's got to win it straight up. Pavlochenko, I think final as well. Svitolina has to win it. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I know. Yeah, it's a it's a try because I would love to still put my money on Svitolina after after the the impassioned. <laughs> <laughs> the impassioned uh, plea I made for her in our last <laughs> episode. I, if it was less than winning the title, I would have more confidence. But I don't know if she has another 250 in her after having, you know, having to win it win Chicago and getting close at the 500 Chicago tournament. Yeah, I don't. It's crazy to think that she could potentially have clinched it here. I mean, if it's if it really comes down to any one of these players winning a title. That's a lot of pressure. I mean, in the past, you've seen players have to make a quarterfinal or make or win a match. And then you see like sort of this mass exodus of these players all of a sudden, like pulling out of the tournament because they've done what they had to do mathematically to make it to the finals. So, I mean, if it if it takes if I have to take um, one of them winning a title over Bedosa, I guess my 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 pick to do that of this group would probably be Svitolina. But I don't. I don't know if she's got another title in her so soon. I mean, especially, and especially physically, the way right? It just felt like she was drained at the end of Indian Wells. And Kansavai sort of getting that's getting that um that stumbling block in Indian Wells. Maybe if she had gone deeper here, I would have felt like oh she can go and you know win another title. But then there's also the um the logistics of just I mean, Onjabor flying to having to potentially go from Indian Wells to Moscow, back to Guadalajara. I mean, this is what we talked about with Emma Raducanu, and people are still mad at me about it because I was just like, guys, this is a lot to put on anybody, much less a teenage girl. But I think, you know, it's 
you run the risk then of an Anshabor who has not always been the most physically sound picking up an injury from all of this tennis or just not feeling, I mean, the commentator noted it at 5-2 in the second, Owens looked exhausted. I mean, like it was just, it's a lot of tennis to expect of a lot of these players who have not played this amount of matches ever on this level, certainly. I mean, even like a Krechkova sort of seemingly not having that extra gear to figure out Bedosa in the fourth round, You, based on the way she's played earlier in the season, you would think, well, that's something that she can maybe figure out. But I think, yeah, if it, if it really comes down to one of them winning a title or Bedosa not winning Indian Wells, I think I guess I would pick I would pick Bedosa over the field at this point if it really does come down to it like that. I'm sticking with the theme of I'm right, you're wrong. I'm going to ride the Conteve wins Moscow take uh, to, its, okay. to its natural mm-hmm. conclusion. Um, but no, I'm just like, what's I'm trying to think what's the zag here? Because you're right. It's like, do you, if Bedosa beats Vika, it's over. And yeah, it is one of like, what is more likely to happen? Bedosa rides this wave to a title or one of Conteve, Kerber, Pavlochenkovers, Fidelina win a title, uh, win a title this week. I mean, looking at the I would final lean towards the former because one has only one match and yeah, the other has to get through an entire field and Moscow, you go down the list, Kasakina, Ostapenko, Rybakina, Kudermatova, Von Drusova, Samsonova, Halep, you know, Tom Janovich, Alexandrova. There's a lot of players in this 500 field. A lot of them went over to Moscow to play this event, but those is one match away. And just to preview the final a little bit, I do think based on the way Vika has played this tournament, impressive that she's been able to close the door and win the last point of these matches. It has not been easy getting there. I mean, certainly Ostapenko, the way that she played a set in two thirds. <laughs> I mean, especially at, at four or five in the third set, uh, Vika throws in a, a rough double fault for, that would have put that put Ostapenko two points away from winning. You think at that point. This is it. You know, she comes back from 3-1 down in the third and, and doesn't get it done. I mean, really played some some good defense, some good back, did, like stopped missing at one point in the third set, just really let Ostapenko um, end herself, I guess, to put it for no other better <laughs> use, just either living by the, winning the point or losing the point. Vika wasn't hitting winners really by the end of that match at all. Um, and just based on that level, I mean, I feel like you would kind of need someone to hit Bedosa off the court at this point or have such a wacky game mm-hmm. that she's not used to it or like a, just an unfamiliar opponent the way Tamara Zidanechuk was in, in Paris. So I don't know. I f- at this point, it feels sort of foolhardy to bet against Bedosa against Vika when she has beaten more in-form opponents coming into this tournament, even if she hasn't beaten maybe players with Vika's resume, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I absolutely. And, you know, again, with that said, let's talk about Vika and her performance here this season heading into the final as well. And I've got a couple more topics for you, and then I promise I'm going to let you go. We're going to go under an hour. It's a weekend to ask you. Everybody's working on the weekends. Yeah, I threw in a little shoulder shimmy, too, to really sell the performance. But anyways, on Victoria Azarenka, it's been a fascinating year for Vika. And the numbers reflect as much. You look at what she's accomplished here this season. Again, sneaky Sneaky amounts for, of success for the two-time Indian Wells champion. You look for her here in 2021, 28 and eight. David, 70. You know she's winning 78 percent of her matches now. That doesn't include her withdraws to Garbine Muguruza, to Saribes Tormo, to Jessica Pagula, to Muguruza. I should say twice or Annette Conteve at the start of the season in in uh, in Australia. But in the matches she's actually competed in and been healthy enough to be on court for, and you can date this back really to the start of last season as well, right? Or the start of the restart when, you know, she runs through the Western and Southern Open final and she makes the U.S. Open final as well. Victoria Azarenka is playing really, really good tennis over the past 15 months. And you look at the percentages for her, you know, she's held serve about 70, you know, it's about 69.3% of the time. It's above her career average by 0.7%. She's breaking serve 45.6% of the time. That's 0.1 above her career averages. What that tells me is we still have maybe not peak of her powers, Victoria Azarenka, but a Victoria Azarenka who's still on that tail end of the prime, who can still play her best tennis when healthy on court. Now, do we see it as frequently? Absolutely not. But Vika's played really well this year. I don't think this is a fluke run. Like, I I do think if you, again, the numbers have indicated she's been that good this season, and I know points race lags a bit behind, but that's just because she hasn't played that frequently. When we've seen her on court, she's been excellent. It's just been a matter of health. 
Has she? I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, for me, I'm so top line with this sort of stuff. Sure. I mean, I, I do think of her match in Paris, her match at Wimbledon, her match at the okay, US Open. Excellent might be a stretch, losses. but very good. I mean, it's just, but it's almost the sort of like, well, what do you value? It's just like, technically she's been better probably than years past. I mean, obviously in, in, in a way it's kind of a low bar. Cause if you, with, if you take out the three months of 2016, where she was really running the table, winning back-to-back Indian Wells in Miami. It has been a rough decade for Vika. I mean, pretty much since 2014, when she lost the quarterfinals of the Australian Open to Aga Radvanska and sort of like that wacky 6-1, which is one of those shattering matches really for Vika, who was just never quite the same physically, you know, took most of that year off, was trying to get back to her best at the end of 2015 and then has her baby and having all kinds of, you know, strife and, and a fraught relationship. Um, in terms of personal stuff. And so I coming back to the end of 2020, it was hard to really get a sense of where she was at because it was um, winning quote unquote Cincinnati was sort of like a perfect storm in the sense she got like the perfect amount, the perfect kinds of players who were just kind of struggling with that post pandemic haze and having that sort of consistent game and kind of played herself into form and then had a phenomenal win over Serena Williams in the semis that no one can really, no one can take away from her. It's her first win over Serena at a slam. So in that sense, by that metric, she's better than she ever was because that was something she was never able to do pre 2014. But I, it, she seems like the kind of player now who can have one between one and three really great results a year and this is if you think of like all those points that just came off in terms of since and us open she needed this result this is a result now that's going to really buoy her ranking for the next year she's you know and when you think of players who are making that decision whether or not to retire you you tend to see it being players who can no longer compete in the top 100 and this is a, now a result that's going to just keep her right up in the mix you know get her some seeds at slams and some and some bigger tournaments you know and or rather at smaller tournaments um so it's it's an interesting one for me i just i haven't been super impressed by the actual tennis she's put down but she's won the last point of her last five matches so i mean in that sense you know, that's that's really commendable and phenomenal. It was something that she wasn't doing at the slams against Muguruza, against Pavlyuchenkova, who she owns um, in Paris, did not get that match finished. And then against Serana Kirstea at Wimbledon, a really wacky match that you would have expected Vika to walk away with in her prime or even close to her prime. But um, and again, being a set in 2-0 down to Ostapenka, I really thought Aliona was going to walk away with that. I was very surprised that she really let it let it all go in the second set and then could not quite string together four points in a row to win these games that she really needed to would have been a really interesting final for me in Ostapenko Bedosa <laughs> final but um <laughs> um for Azarenka yeah I mean listen she's a worst case scenario she's a runner-up I mean playing a sort of a WTA WTA 1000 newbie debutante in Bedosa you know maybe experience wins out and she kind of finds her extra level played a really great set and a half of the U.S. Open final gets Naomi Osaka as well. So she can come out swinging and really maybe perhaps overwhelm Bedosa, but she's going to have to really take it to her and not let Bedosa dictate. There's an interesting nugget there. Are the Indian Wells points going to hold one? for a year? Oh, no, no, one <laughs> of many. And there, it was a, it was a 20 piece, many McNuggets <laughs> for us to enjoy. Um, but I guess the nugget is the the not the takeaway from – because I want to get back to everything you just said. But are yeah. they going to let the Indian Wells points stay on the resume for a year or is it going to be removed when they compete in March? Because that's like – is this a big result for Vika's ranking? That's the only reason I bring it up is because that's yeah. what I'm curious about. My guess based on the way the WTA has been very conservative in yes. terms of letting points stay on, my, be- my guess is that it will stay on for 52 weeks if you do better in – Indian Wells 2022, those points will replace gotcha. your ranking. So if you're a Carolina Pliskova or a Spontek or someone who maybe didn't do as well as you would have liked, you get those points. But so if only you growth. You then have- only, yeah, yeah, glass half full. Only I growth. like that. Yeah. That's a good solution. Yeah. But to your – so here's the thing. Victoria has a rank of this year. Let me just list the loss for you regardless of if it's a withdraw or not. Conteve – and you just say, bad or good. Let's just play a quick game. We're going to rapid fire through. Bad or good. Bad, good, fine, whatever. Conteve was Fine. withdrawn. Pagula first round Australian Open. At the po- at that time, it was probably fine to bad. It has gone up probably sort of retroactively from fine to good based on the way Pagula has handled the rest of the season. But in that in that moment, you know, it was. And then also she was coming off of a hard quarantine, as I remember. So yeah, hard to judge that one. I would say fine. Yeah, I agree. At, at worst, fine. Barty three sets Miami. 
I mean, based on the way Barty had come into Miami, I did kind of think that Vika was going to have a shot at that one. You know, it was probably the best chance she had of taking out a, a top player like that early in the season. So I might, I might lean bad on that one because oh, it really could, that's a I, match that could have turned her season around. Thank God really you're not teaching it. third graders. You'd crush them with this scale of grading. You'd be like C plus. And then you're like, <laughs> it was cursive. You asked me to write C's. That's not what you're doing in third grade. Anyways, um, Fine. I, I disagree. Barty wins the tournament. Three sets. I think it's fine at worst. I would argue it's, it's not a good loss, but it's fine. Three sets, Pavlichenkova, French Open round of 16. Bad. Sorry. Bad. I mean, the <laughs> fact that she owns Pavlichenkova, the way Pavlichenkova really was not playing great for large stretches of that match. She felt like Azarenka had the mental ascendancy on her and then just kind of really fell away at the end of that match. So, I mean, great for, again, these players all went on to do pretty good stuff at the end of that, at the end of the tournament. So you think, well, you know, but sometimes it takes We're playing that the result. Yeah, sure. yeah. It takes that match for that player to do well. And so that, yeah. So no. Fine. <laughs> Samson over Berlin. I think it's fine. Ludmilla was fine. so good. Yeah. So she played really well that tournament. I think she yeah. really did play a great match that week. Yeah. So was she like, was wow. just lights out. Kirstea Wimbledon was bad. I don't bad. even think that's a debate. Yeah. Sabalenka Montreal, fine. Like, she beat Sakari 7-6 in the third, the round before. I think it's a fine loss. Yeah, I would even say good. Yeah. Barty, I'll throw in a good. Barty, Cincinnati, 0-2. It doesn't look good. Barty that was, wins that's Cincinnati. That's a fine. Yeah. I would it, say fine at that point, because at that point, Barty is a different player than she was in March. So mm-hmm. yeah, fine. And then Muguruza it's, 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 US yeah. Open was bad for everyone. No, there were no winners in that match. He, despite Garbine Muguruza winning, that was a that was not the highest quality match. It was just a rough it was a rough one because we felt like we were in this position where these that was the same day as Halep, Rebekina. There were just all these phenomenal third round matches, and that tournament just took such a turn <laughs> towards yeah. the end. <laughs> You know, but obviously for great, you know, a lot of great stuff happened at the end. But you just you thought there was going to be a lot of these this battle royale ended up being a totally different narrative. So that was that the swing match, maybe. Then Muguruza Azarenka, then the Muguruza Kruchikova, and just everything that followed there, chaos, just absolute <laughs> chaos. Um, but no, so all that said, all right, two bad losses for Victoria Azarenka this season. Like that's not bad. Three bad losses in, in or four on the David Kane scale, but. Eight total, like that. Those are it. Those are the losses, and all of those names. Except how many walkovers did she? Did she? I believe four of them this year. Two to Muguruza, Eh. one to uh, to Conteve, one to Cerebus Torma. I don't know. I just yeah. She's been such a non-factor this whole season. That the fact that she's really. She's probably, in, in a way, was probably one of the more surprising players in the, the top eight. I mean, maybe Ostapenko, just, but, but she had had a really good runner-up finish in Luxembourg, so it was kind of coming in with a head of steam. But you look at, like, Rogers, at Kerber, at Bedosa, at Ons, at Kontavite, like, pretty much all of them had had a very recent good results. And for Krasarenka, really the one you could point at was her, you know, near near miss against um, Garbinier at the U.S. Open. So Yeah, no, I- no, it's fair. You might have convinced I'm rough. me. I'm a rough no, one. no, no, no. You might have convinced me that 28, it's a bit of a facade. She hasn't been that. You know, top 25 in terms of the points race. She's going to stay inside the top 25 of the rankings. Not top 25 club, though. But, yeah, she's been solid. She's been very, very solid this year for Victoria Azarenka. But from there, my last two topics I want to hit with you. The player she beat last night in the swing match, Yelena Ostapenko, who – so – I made this case on the mini break. I think Elena Ostapenko is back, David. I think we can officially say it. And you just look at what she's accomplished here down the home stretch of 2021. Since the start of the grass court season, and this includes the result in Birmingham, three set loss for her to Martin Sova. 19 and 8 overall over a three month stretch. It's a 70% win percentage for her. That's her highest number uh, of her career. Highest, you know, it's only three months. She has her highest win percentage this season since uh, 2017, which was obviously her breakthrough season when she won the 2017 French Open as well. You look at the metrics for her hold percentage this season, 65.3%. That's a career high. Break percentage, 44.2%. That's the highest since 2017. It's a confidence thing as well. You just look at the results for Ostapenko even more granularly. Again, title in Eastbourne, arguably the most impressive five-match run on any tournament we've seen this season, Grand Slam or otherwise, beating Pavlochenkova, Jabour, Kazakina, Rabakina, Kontave. That's money. She also, you know, 
final for her in Luxembourg, now loses a three-set match to toss, and that one hurts, but I don't think that's a bad loss on an indoor hard court. You know, beats Putenseva, beats Fiontech, beats Rogers. probably should have beaten Vika last night, but didn't, but still, three-set losses for her, the theme, a three-set loss to Tom Janovich in Wimbledon, three sets to the Ooh. one and only, Alina Viznina at Tokyo, the three-set loss to Tossin, three-set loss to Vika, three-set loss to Martin Sova. The losses are just more competitive now. And for Yelena Ostapenko, after, you know, 2018, 2019, the problem was when she was there, she looked excellent. On the off days, they were horrendous. The bad 15, 20-minute stretches still exist, but they've been minimized. And the 20 minutes of unplayable tennis where she's just hitting you off the court— they're slightly more maximized now. And by the way, Yelena Ostapenko, despite being a part of our lives for five years now, still just 24 years old here this season. Age curve-wise, this is when you ascend into your prime. I think we're seeing the prime of Ostapenko begin to emerge, and one can just only hope she brings this level to the start of 2022 because the best of Ostapenko is still very, very good. I love Ostapenko. I love that crazy tennis. I think that was, it was so, it was quite pleasing to me to see. I mean, like, I think I tweeted, like, I know she's not American. She may not even be of this planet, but like the fact that these people in Indianapolis were not cheering for some of those winners against Shelby Rogers was, was criminal to me. Just the, the, the heart in your mouth swings that she was going for and making for a large swath of that match, which is so impressive. I think the consensus can be is she is probably back to the level that she was at end of 2016 early 27 or maybe 2017 2018 or maybe right before maybe like the spring of 2017 leading up to Roland Garros I feel like she was a bit better maybe from 2017 2018 did make that Wimbledon semi made the finals in Miami having a few more of these big results smushed together I just think for her there is she's gone through all of this and I'm not quite clear whether she's learned anything like i just don't feel like you know there's i don't know if she knows how to replicate this i feel like she's just on a you know is feeling good positive feeling maybe feeling good healthy physically and just you know getting these matches had a good you know swing of of results has had some really close calls that could have really given her a better season i mean going back to wimbledon i she was probably my dark horse pick to win the title i mean if she if she'd figured out Tomlianovich, she could have gotten Barty. You know, that could have been a wacky match. You know, you don't know what would have happened at that point. Barty was having some some tricky early first week matches. You know, maybe that would have went a little bit differently. And she's coming off I, the Eastbourne title. It wasn't a dark horse pick. It was a good pick. I just, it's just, I just don't know. It was just, it was frustrating to watch her kind of not be able to get out of her own way in the semifinals and just mm-hmm. not really have... Some, I feel like, you know, she's an interesting foil to Bedoso. I feel like Bedoso has, has, has encountered a lot of hurdles and adversity and has really found out, kind of figured out strategies and figured out how to, to get them out of her way. I feel like with Ostapenko, it really does kind of just rely on the wind. <laughs> you know, it's just like the wind, the weather, how she's feeling, whether she woke up on the right side of the bed that morning. So I would certainly love to see more of this. I just, I'm not clear where she goes from here. And then, of course, we're in this part of the season where the season's almost over. Now she's got to start over in January, which mm-hmm. has traditionally not been a great stretch of the season for her, although it should be. Hard courts, you know, I, I think she might have famously said that she didn't find hard courts as much of a challenge as she found clay and grass, and that's why she plays better on clay and grass, because it just kind of forces her to play her best. She's just really a quote and a half in that respect. But listen, I would love to see it. Um, I just... I want to see more of it, and we're running out of tournaments in the season. I guess it's probably where I come down. No, that's fair. I'd, I think if Ostapenko played Sabalenka, we just have to stop the tour. We just be like, it's over after this. This is this is the end, everyone. This is the the script we've reached. It's just the talent is so abundantly clear. There are times when she's hitting through the court, and you're just like, how did you do that? And just. You know, she'll hit a swinging volley that you're just like, I'm not tracking that one down. And just her backhand return and the aggressiveness on return and just the mindset she plays with. It's a f*** you edge where it's just like yeah. I'm playing my tennis and I play on my terms and she's given the quotes. And, you know, you've heard them all before where it's just like I don't really care what you're doing. It's it's on me. This match is on me. And if I play my best, I beat you. And there's just a value to that in that, A, it's a mindset very few people have. 
And B, while it does get her into loads of trouble, it also allows her to compete with the best on the best on her best. And I still think her best is as good as anyone else's. It's just about channeling it again, turning 20 minutes into 45 minutes and not, you know, and turning the 15 minutes of errors into six minutes of errors. And I do think there are a lot of parallels between where her and Sabalenka are at. And I... I don't want to say this is her end of Sabal, you know, twenty twenty end of season for Sabalenka breakthrough to set up for the big twenty twenty two, but I do like that it's been three months of consistent results. I do like that during the stretch of time you look for, and of course she wasn't able to play the U.S. Open, but her only first round losses were the Vesnina three sets, and then the Sinyakova, you know, she loses to Montreal one in three first match Montreal. That's it in a three month stretch. She's lost first round just twice. You haven't been able to say that about Ostapenko since roughly 2017. Shout out to Vesnina, by the way, winning that match at the Olympics. I mean, give yeah. her a gold medal for that first We're round. Sneak her in, I, don't worry. No, I feel like it, the Sabalenka comparison is actually quite fascinating because they both obviously are looking to do very similar things on the court. I think the difference between the two of them is I feel like Sabalenka is really doing everything in her power, and it's yeah. and it's hard because she's young and still you know kind of dealing with everything wants to really get better like is sort of like a student of the game in sort of a bizarre way like he wouldn't think of someone like her as being you know this someone who you know she's got this power she's confident you feel like you know i'm just gonna you know power my way to victory i feel like ostapenko already feels like she's really great i mean it's sort of like what your strength is is your is your greatest weakness i feel like she already feels like she's the best player on tour and doesn't really have to improve and i think to the extent that she's at her best her 2017 best yes it's kind of true she was playing a lot of three setters to win rolling garros they were these sort of topsy-turvy matches and she was figuring out how to win in the end it was kind of the 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 match against rogers is sort of the the perfect you know encapsulation of it i mean i was most impressed by the igish fountain match really just even with the break, with the injury timeout, just kind of figured it out at the end. I just feel like the same things that are haunting Ostapenko continue to haunt her, which is that her serve is still not great. <laughs> She's still maybe sometimes too aggressive or doesn't always know when to pull the trigger. And physically, I feel like you need to maybe be a little bit fitter. And I just think, in, and that's, you know, just anecdotally, you know, I was I, in, in St. Petersburg, some of the breakfasts I heard that she would eat that were not really something that an elite player would eat for breakfast, for example. Like, that's just sort of these things where, and then I think she ended up having a medical timeout for, like, stomach ailments, like that match. So, I mean, like, it sort of bore out right on the court. So it's, I want to see more. I want to feel like that she has a team behind her who can really, you know, focus her and get her to play this really phenomenal tennis. She is closer than she has been in many years. I will say that for sure. Um, I just hope that she has a really productive offseason and kind of can do everything she can to optimize her strengths and sort of minimize her weaknesses. I mean, even against Azarenka, the, some of the second serve replies that she was able to sort of turn around, like Vika was almost on the service line for some of those second serves and was able to then pass Vika at the net, like to sort of reabsorb the return for a winner. Phenomenal stuff. I mean, it's just... The, the crowd needed to be on its feet for that one. And I think also maybe learning how to channel the crowd a little bit better could also play to her strengths as well, because I feel like she could do well to have that sort of hype underneath her, sort of something that a, a Yulia Putintseva has for over the years kind of been able to weirdly channel the crowd to her side, sort of like energize them when they, she hits a really good shot or a really big winner. And I feel like Ostapenko could do the same, and it might kind of make up for some of the physical and tactical deficiencies that sometimes undercut her game. Yelena Ostapenko, sixth in break percentage here in the 2021 season, 43rd in hold percentage amongst top 50 players. Yeah, it is the serve. And the thing is, the serve is the controllable. It is the easiest thing to get better at. The talent is abundant. You're right. The process can still get a little bit cleaner, but it does feel like something has clicked here down the home stretch. And just so, as always, Ostapenko remains one to watch in 2022. Last topic for you. I don't really have much of a question. It's just worth, of course, pointing out Own Jabour, first Arab woman in history to crack the top 10 of the WTA singles ranking. She's just about clinched herself a spot at the year-end finals in Guadalajara. It's an open-ended question. Wherever you want to take this Jabour praise, go where your heart desires. But it's just, it again, it's her game is such an outlier too, just the way she takes that ball early on the rise. She's got to be the only person on tour who is comfortable men's or women's playing a drop shot off of a serve and it just works for her and you're just like how can you do that like i challenge anyone go play with people of your level and try and hit a drop shot off of their serve 
It's damn near impossible to do. Now, if you're playing people below your level, it gets a little bit easier. But Jabour's playing the best of the best, David, and she's just able to do these things. I mean, for, it's a former Junior Grand Slam champion, but it's all clicked for her here, age 27. It's just, it's been remarkable to watch. Um, where do I start? So, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I go way back with Lana Shabor. Yeah. I watched her play Laura Robson in juniors at the 2009 US Open and never thought I would see her again. I mean, like you see like these sort of junior slam players and you think, you know, some of them, I also saw Anna Kanyu play Gillian Ostapenko in a, in a second round that I wish I really had paid more attention to given the fact that they became <laughs> big deals, you know, in their own respective ways. But I mean, I mean, it feels like it's kind of all come at once. I mean, a few weeks ago, it was like, will Jabor crack the top 20? Like she that was like a big question whether she would have, you know, cobbled together enough points to get into the top 20. And then I think now we're sort of seeing the result of this sort of ranking flux where now the beginning of 2020 points have really kind of helped her just push her right over the finish line. And, and, the, and the players who had been in the top 10 for most of this year were not able to sort of defend or make up points that they, they would have needed. But I mean, listen, she's phenomenal for tennis. She's a f great talker. She's a great entertainer. She's self-aware. She's, you know, I feel like is kind of figuring out when to bring the flair, yeah. <laughs> I guess we're gonna, I was gonna say something else, you know, like when to bring it and when to kind of hold back and really was constructing points, even against Bedosa in a way that, you know, you didn't ordinarily see. She's certainly at her fittest. She's not dealing with the injuries that she used to deal with or earlier in her career. She's been able to string together a phenomenal string of matches. You know, I mean, I, certainly of, when you look back on this season, the top 10 most influential players, I mean, she's certainly one of them, is, has been a factor at pretty much every tournament, made her first grand, uh, not first, made her a grand slam quarterfinal at Wimbledon, which was phenomenal. I just, you know, it's, where does she, you know, what is her ceiling? We don't know yet. And, and you know, she is so naturally talented as she has told us over the years, you know, that that it's it's great to finally see it um, bear out. Um, it's It'll be interesting to see where she goes next. I mean, she's, it's gonna be a tough, you know, depending on what she does and if she makes Guadalajara, what she does there, where, how long she will be in the top 10, because she's got a lot of points potentially coming off fairly quickly. Um, but I mean, listen, I mean, to get the acknowledgements and the endorsement of Billie Jean King, you can't have much a stronger um, support system than that. And I think it's just someone is such a, um, a testament to hard work, persistence, determination, dedication. I think you can't, you can't, I can't speak more highly of her. I think it's, she's just phenomenal. And I'm, I'm really happy that after all of the the drama and theatrics she was able to officially crack the top 10 yeah, no exactly it's a, again one of the many beautiful moments of the season but with all of that said david 58 15 we did it so with that in mind before i let you go uh, i do of course as always want to give you a chance plug everything you guys are doing over at tennis.com obviously you guys have been busy throughout this indian wells any stories in particular you're proud of? Anything else we can expect for you uh, from you over the next few weeks? It's been pretty quiet for me this fortnight. I have to say we had a, we had a huge team on the ground, so I think I let them really you know take the first dibs on most of the stories. But I did write up a really good, excuse me, recap of Bedosa Kerber that I was pretty proud of, just sort of summing up her last couple of weeks. But yeah, anything from me you can find on tennis.com and Baseline. I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter at dktnns for all of social media musing stats memes pictures of elena ostapenko with her hand on her chin and just really <laughs> real housewives anything and everything gifts. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all that all that yeah. and more <laughs> yeah come on no i love it as always and no again i sincerely for those who don't know i we're it's 4 18 p.m on saturday by the time we're finishing record this i think i texted you well, i don't give it up before 11 so it must have been like 11 10 11 no i was up a little bit before 11 today because i wanted to get some time on the bike before i record with chris Otto. but i think i so it must have been like 10 46 i'm gonna guess if i had to guess what time i dm'd you and you were like yeah i can do this afternoon and here we are recording so as always i appreciate you taking the time that's why you're a returning champion it's why you're sending up the crack rackets podcast appearances uh, rankings so thank you so much as always I was on the bike too this afternoon, Alex. But yeah. <laughs> we're soulmates. Yeah. <laughs> but a fantastic soul, day. Soul cycle mates. Oh, soul yeah, we're soul cycle, cycle mates. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> um, but no, as always, David, thank you so much. Thanks so much. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis Channel editorial producer David Kane. A thank you to him, as always, for taking the time to chat. We always have a good time whenever he's on the show. And sincerely, I mean it when I say if you're not reading his work, you really should be. Some of my favorite in the business, all of that available at tennis.com, baseline.tennis.com. And again, thank you to David for taking the time to chat. Of course, as I mentioned at the top, we talked about the men's singles chaos over on our mini break podcast feed today with Chris Otto. We've recapped every day's action on that mini break podcast feed so if you've missed out on anything you can catch up on it all over there or on our website crackrackets.com of course if you need the more immediate updates twitter instagram facebook youtube we are at crackrackets you want to message me directly i am at great shot pod a shout out as always to our super producers max figure and daniel westoff for the of editing job they do day in day out with all that said for our fantastic guests, David Kane, super producer Sligner and Westoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>